0: Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 18 and reading through verse 22, the Bible says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment uh, if he does. Uh, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins if he does. The wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, where the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become New. And it is a verse that does remind us that when Jesus came into this world, he came not really to reform us, but he really came to change us. He came to regenerate us. He came to make us brand new creatures. In other words, he was not interested in improving the old Danny Akin. Uh, he came to this world to make, praise God, a brand new Danny Aiken, a brand new me, and a brand new you. Uh, That's true on the cosmic level, and one day we will realize that when we enjoy what Revelation 21 and 22 call the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. But it's also the case that right now he is in the midst of changing lives on a personal level, one by one by one by one. And it's also the case that when you come to the Bible and you understand the relationship between the old and the new... Uh, you also understand that Jesus did not come to reform uh, uh, Judaism. For example, the, the reformers of the 16th century, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, uh, very much saw their movement as a reformation. They were reforming, they thought, uh, the church at Rome, and they were trying to get it back uh, to where it ought to have been all along. That's not the case with Jesus' coming. Uh, he came to do something brand new that would indeed break in a real sense uh, the world of Judaism and now the new world of Christianity. You know, it's popular today to say that uh, all roads lead to heaven. In fact, if you don't say that, you'll be accused of being a spiritual bigot. Uh, you'll be accused of being narrow and being unloving and unkind. Uh, we call this pluralism. Uh, It simply says that uh, when it comes to going to heaven, there's a Hindu way, there's a Buddhist way, uh, there's a Muslim way, there's a Jewish way, there's a Christian way, there's a New Age way, there's an animist way, and I can keep on going as many religions as there are out there in the world, and there are all sorts of roads, many different roads. In fact, every road eventually will lead you to heaven. We call that pluralism. But very interestingly, when it comes to two religions in particular, uh, Judaism And Christianity Uh, there has always been conversation about well just what is the relationship that exists uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament and what relationship exists for example today uh, between this religion called Judaism and this religion called Christianity and amazingly over the last several decades in particular since uh, the Holocaust uh, and World War II There has developed a a theology known as two-covenant theology, or sometimes it goes by the title dual-covenant theology. And I'm going to unwrap that for just a moment, but the bottom line is simply this. There are two covenants that God has made with two different peoples. One covenant he made with the Jewish people. The other covenant he made with Gentiles. Uh, The covenant that he made with the Jewish people is a covenant of works, and if they obey the law, the Torah, then they are in a right relationship with God, and they do not need to be converted. In fact, uh, my good friend Al Mohler, when he was at Southern Seminary, he had a doctoral seminar uh, his first year in doctoral studies. And there was a man that had been serving as a Southern Baptist missionary for many years in uh, Israel who was sitting in as one of the instructors in that seminar. And uh, Al shared with me on one occasion that the man began to weep in class one day. And he said, when I go back to Israel, I'm going to apologize to all the Jewish persons I tried to evangelize because they do. "...do not need to become a Christian in order to go to heaven when they die." That in its most simple uh, form is what we mean by two-covenant or dual-covenant theology. For example, in a religious news service article, it was stated, and I quote, Two covenant theology maintains that God's covenant with the Jews has never been abrogated, and that Jewish people do not need to become Christians in order to attain salvation." Some proponents of this theology say the Holocaust mandated a new Christian attitude toward Jews because it involved a new revelation of God on the same status as the biblical revelation. The position has won acceptance in recent years in official bodies of such denominations as the Episcopal Church. Presbyterian Church at USA, and the most liberal Protestant denomination in America today, the United Church of Christ. I think it might also be interesting and maybe a little disconcerting for some of you to also know uh, that the popular TV preacher John Hagee of San Antonio, Texas, also is a proponent of dual covenant, uh, two covenant, theology when it comes to salvation for the jews and salvation for gentiles i quote trying to convert jews is a waste of time everyone else whether buddhist or baha'i needs to believe in jesus but not jews jews already have a covenant with god that has never been replaced with christianity the jewish people have a relationship to god through the law of god as given through moses i believe that every gentile person though can only come to god through the cross of christ i believe that every jewish person who lives in the light of the torah the law which is the word of god has a relationship with god and will come to redemption now for some of you that like some of the ...popular television preachers and evangelists, and maybe he happens to be one of those because he seems to be uh, right-thinking on a a number of areas. Well, I would submit he's badly, wrongly thinking in this particular area. But as I was putting this message together, even this last, uh, 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 well, now two months, uh, in October... Uh, excuse me, in November, so the previous month, in uh, November uh, the 5th of this year, there was a news release entitled CJCUC, CJ and I'll explain what that means in just a moment. Uh, CJCUC calls upon Catholic leaders to discuss religious connection to Israel, and here is a press release that came out of Jerusalem November the 5th, 2010. Quote, the center, of Jew, the center of Jewish Christian Understanding and Cooperation, hence C-J-C-U-C, in Ephraim and Jerusalem have strongly protested and do strongly protest the October 24 statements of Archbishop, a Roman Catholic, Archbishop Cyril Salim Bustros, which he made at the Bishop's Synod on the Middle East. His statement, quote, God's promises to the Jewish people were abolished by the presence of Christ. So he's no dual covenant uh, Catholic. Uh, God's promises to the Jewish people were abolished by the presence of Christ. And the Jewish people are no longer a favored people, close quote. It is said that this statement revives the old supersessionist theology responsible For so much Jewish suffering at the hands of Christians throughout history, and it denies the right of the Jewish people to their biblical, historical, and covenantal homeland in Israel. Uh, These kinds of statements pain Jews all around the world, and they erode Jewish confidence in fruitful Catholic Jewish dialogue. Archbishop Boutros has confused Catholics regarding church teachings toward Judaism and the Jewish people, the church's older brothers and sisters. So you understand that uh, this particular statement is simply saying well, we're all part of the same family, spiritually speaking. It's just that the Jewish uh, uh, faith, the Hebrew faith, came first. And so you and I, if we're thinking rightly We'll consider the Jewish religion today to be nothing more than our elder brothers and our elder sisters. And we're all one big, happy, happy spiritual family living under and worshiping the same uh, God up there in heaven. And so the uh, particular press release concludes by saying uh, it is our prayer that this fraternal dialogue between catholic and jewish leaders produces greater understanding of each other and of god's word to his children and to renewed respect for each of our holy spiritual traditions. So in other words, among mainline protestant liberals today, they believe that we are in a um, wrong-headed way of thinking if we're going to try to convert jews. And even those of a more moderate liberal Jewish orientation will join hands with the moderate liberal Protestants and say we're all one big happy family and we don't need to convert you to Judaism, which has never really been something strong in the Jewish faith to begin with. And you Christians certainly don't need to be sticking your nose into our business and trying to tell us that Jesus is our Messiah and that we will go to hell if we don't receive Jesus as Our Savior. Well, all that is to say this. This text before us uh, tonight addresses this kind of issue. And Jesus, by the analogy of the bridegroom, uh, the analogy of a piece of cloth, and the analogy of wineskins, makes it very, very, very clear that there is a distinctively different relationship between one who is Jewish in terms of their religious orientation and one who is Christian. In other words, he makes it clear that there is, if you like, a a discontinuity, a break. Something new happens and things are now different with the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. In other words, he would repudiate and does repudiate in the strongest way any idea of two ways to heaven and two covenants that are acceptable before God. In other words, to summarize where he's going to go tonight, he's going to say the the new wine of Christianity cannot be contained by the old wineskins of Judaism. With his coming, everything is changed, and with his coming, it is a new day. How so? Well, two major ideas in our text this evening. Number one, Jesus tells us in verses 18 through 20, he came to bring joy and not sorrow. Verses 18 through 22, as we said earlier, is the third of these five great controversies that begin in chapter 2, verse 1, and go all the way through chapter 3 in verse 6. Back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the controversy was, who can forgive sins but God alone? The second controversy is found in verses 13 through 17, where uh, the disciples of Jesus are asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, the Pharisees could just, they just could not get happy. Uh, They could not be joyful over a paralytic being healed. They could not be happy over sinners being saved as far as they were concerned. Jesus said the wrong things. Jesus did the wrong things. In fact, in their eyes, basically Jesus never ever gets it right. How much did it bother them? In chapter 3, verse 6, we simply read these words. So they went out, the Pharisees, and immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they could destroy him so these controversies are going to be so acute that it will begin to lay the foundation for what will eventually take place in Jerusalem when our Lord is crucified on the cross. Now, in our text tonight, this very interesting issue is raised that many of us have heard about, but very few of us have ever done, and I will put myself in that category as well, and that is the issue of fasting. And so I'm going to take some time tonight to kind of unwrap what the Bible says about fasting so that we have a biblically accurate understanding of exactly what it is that God expects. In this area But the first thing we understand is this We do not fast and mourn When it is a time of celebration Verse 18 informs us That there are two groups who are fasting Now John's disciples The followers of John the Baptist And also the the Pharisees The followers of the Pharisees They were fasting Whatever that means And people came and said to him That is to Jesus Well, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they do not fast? Now, we understand historically that John's disciples may have been fasting because John had been imprisoned. It may be also that they were fasting uh, because they were hoping and praying and fasting that the coming of the Messiah would soon occur. After all, John the Baptist had predicted that the kingdom of God was at hand, and so they may have been fasting in anticipation of the coming of the kingdom. Uh, The Pharisees, we learn from history, had developed two particular days of the week that one was to fast. One was to fast uh, on Monday, and one was also to fast on Thursday. That is not biblically mandated it is nowhere said in the Scriptures that that is what you are to do. But if you are a spiritual person uh, and you are someone who is very devout, then like a good Pharisee, you would make everybody well aware of the fact that Monday you don't eat, Thursday you don't eat. You are a person of great piety. You are a person of great commitment. Uh, you live a very consecrated life. Now, it's interesting to me to note what just happened in verses uh, 13 through 17. There's a big party going on. Uh, Jesus is basically having a big celebration with Levi and tax collectors and sinners but the Pharisees number 1 they ain't going in but number 2 they don't mind standing outside with their arms folded you know huh look at him in there partying in there having a big time with tax collectors and sinners and here we are the super spiritual the ones who are really godly and we're not eating with sinners like that In fact, we're not eating at all. We're fasting. We're the people that you ought to look up to, not him. We're the people who really please God, not them. And again, for those of us who've been in church all of our lives, like me, nine months before I ever came out of my mother's womb, and every day since for the most part, I am just as susceptible, if I'm not careful, to being a Christian Pharisee as they were Hebrew Pharisees. Looking down, my self-righteous knows that people who don't do it the way I do it and who aren't as spiritual as I am, don't read the Bible as often as I do, don't share the gospel as often as I do, don't go on mission trips as often as I do, don't give as much money as I do, we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks too. It's going to be right there staring us in the face as well. But it's very easy for us to point our fingers and say, praise God, I'm not like the Pharisees. And by doing that, you almost yourself make yourself a Pharisee by that very action. So we need to look at ourselves very carefully and not say, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. Because once you say that, you are like them. So they're outside the house. They won't go in. Uh, They're not eating. And so they begin to see what's going on. And as they often do in these series of controversies, they ask a question, but it's really not a question. It's actually actually an, an, an accusation in the form of a question. Why do your disciples not fast like the Pharisees' disciples and the disciples of John? In other words, why aren't they as spiritual as are those who follow us and follow John? Now the question, what do we mean by fasting? Uh, you'll notice that the word occurs here a number of times. One, two, three, four, five times in verses 18 through 20. So what is fasting? What does the Bible say about fasting? Is it something that the Bible commands us to do? Uh, is it something the Bible gives us principles and guidelines for? Exactly what do we mean by fasting? Well, i detailed it uh, extensively in your notes. So I'm going to move through it quickly since you're looking at it along with me uh, at the same time. Fasting in the Bible... Generally means going without all food and sometimes even drink for a period of time. Uh, not merely refraining from certain kinds of food. You're not fasting if, for example, I'm just cutting out chocolate cake uh, and pecan pie during the holidays. Well, that's not fasting. Uh, that may be good sense and it may deny you some fleshly pleasures, but that's not fasting. Uh, furthermore, sometimes people sometimes mistakenly think that when Jesus... Moses, Elijah uh, participated in 40-day fast. They not only did not eat food, they drank nothing. Well, the fact is, you'll die. Uh, you can't go without water for 40 days, and so most likely what you have there is a total food fast on the part of Moses, on the part of Elijah and also on the part of Jesus as well. Well, let's look at it in two categories: Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, only one fast is specified as mandatory. And that was the day of atonement discussed in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, verses 29, going through verse 32, as well as Numbers chapter 29 and verse 7. However, after the exile, when they returned back to the land about 516 B.C., uh, after having been exiled to Babylon, uh, the people of Israel, the, the Jewish nation, began to observe four other fasts based upon Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 19. However, understand, those fasts are not mandated by God. They're simply there recounting the fact that they began to do this uh, probably as an act of gratitude for being returned to the land, as an act of repentance. For the sin that sent them out of the land. And so it's not mandated that they do these other fasts, but they did indeed fast on four other occasions, usually related to their festivals. In addition to these, there were occasional fasts. Sometimes the fasts were individual. Sometimes the fast were corporate. You even find a pagan nation uh, like uh, Assyria with the Ninevites fasting as a nation uh, in Jonah uh, chapter 3. Uh, fasting usually gave expression to grief and uh, to penitence over sin. Uh, it was a way by which men might humble themselves before the Lord. It was often directed toward securing and seeking the guidance uh, and the help of God. Sometimes it could be even uh, viewed as vicarious where you were fasting on behalf of the nation or fasting on behalf uh, of someone else. Now, tragically, as always the case, a good thing got turned into a bad thing. And fasting began to be thought of by many as something that would automatically gain them a hearing and a right standing and the pleasure of God. And yet the prophets made it very clear that without a right heart, you can fast all that you want and it will be in vain. So once more we're reminded that the out, uh, outward action means nothing, means absolutely nothing if the attitude of the heart is not right. In the New Testament, as far as general Jewish practice is concerned, once more, the Day of Atonement is the only annual feast referred to in the New Testament, Acts 27, 9. Uh, As we've noted a moment ago, some Pharisees uh, practiced uh, a strict form of fasting, fasting in addition to the Day of Atonement every uh, Monday of every week and every Thursday of every week. We also read of devout women like Anna who lived in the temple who fasted regularly, fasted extensively in prayer and in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. The only time Jesus is seen or really, he, one time he makes reference, one time he's doing it. The only time we see Jesus fasting is in Matthew and Luke 4, where he's out there during his 40 days uh, of temptation. But yet we need to be honest and acknowledge that the fast there may not have been so much of a ritual as it was a necessity because he's out there in the wilderness and there's simply no food that is available. Now, again, I don't want to make a judgment call there. It may be that indeed, like uh, Moses, like Elijah, He intentionally went to the wilderness for the purpose of fasting. And so we need to note that that may indeed be why he fasted. But it is the only time in the Bible where he is recorded as taking part in this particular spiritual exercise. Now, having said that, it seems clear from the Gospels that Jesus assumed that his hearers would fast. But he taught them that when they did fast, they should look toward God And not toward man. In other words, just to be, uh, clear here, if in the days ahead I choose to fast, not one of you needs to know about it. It's none of your business. And if I make it your business, then I'm doing it for the wrong reason. Well, brother Danny, you look like, uh, you've lost some weight in the last several days. Well, brother, I have. I've been alone with God praying and fasting for the last three or four days. I need anything to eat but a glass of water. Wow, you're spiritual, aren't you? No, I'm carnal and bragging on how spiritually wonderful I am. The fact of the matter is, if you choose to engage in this particular uh, spiritual exercise, the Bible makes it very clear, you do it privately. You do it without fanfare. Uh, you don't make a show of it. It's just simply something you do uh, personally in act, as an act before God. In other words, Jesus doesn't repudiate fasting. He actually seems to commend it. But he's very clear that it must be done for the proper reasons and with the proper heart. Uh, Acts indicates that the early church would fast when choosing missionaries, uh, Acts 13, 2 and 3. They fasted when choosing elders, chapter 14, verse 23. Paul speaks of fasting at least twice in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 11. And so it does seem to be the case that both in the Bible... And in the early history of the church, there was a growing belief in the value of fasting. So, uh, Danny, should I fast if God leads you to fast? Yes, you should. How long should I fast? As long as God leads you to fast. Uh, should I tell anybody? No one other than your mate, if you happen to be married. So I don't need to let my pastor know. No. My Sunday school teacher know. No. Let you know. No. It is something that you do that's strictly between you and God that takes place on the same level as your prayer life. When you pray, get alone in your closet. When you fast, get alone unto yourself. That is the biblical way of engaging in fasting. Now, it's very interesting. They pick at Jesus about fasting, and he doesn't even address the issue directly. Rather, he responds with a wonderful analogy by way of a very short parable about a bridegroom. And basically, we can break the parable down into two components as to the key players. First of all, who is the bridegroom? Answer, Jesus. Secondly, who are the wedding guests? Answer, the disciples. And so look at what he says there in verse 19. Why do your disciples not fast? 19, Jesus says, well, can the wedding guests fast? While the bridegroom is with them? No. As long as they have the bridegroom, they cannot fast. Now, let me just summarize the point. He's basically saying this. I'm here. The Messiah has come. I'm here with my disciples. It would be foolish for them to, to fast. I'm here. I'm with them. This is a time of joy. This is a time of celebration. Who in their right mind would fast at a wedding? Answer, nobody. It is a time when we're happy. It's a time when we're celebrating fasting, when the bridegroom is present, when the wedding is taking place. Is nonsense. It would be so inappropriate. In fact, it would be completely out of sync with what would be the expectation of that particular relationship. You say, help me get this in context. Just think of your own wedding, those of you that are married. I got married on May the 27th, 1978 in uh, uh, Forest Park, Georgia, the Ash Street Baptist Church. Did we even consider the idea of fasting? Uh, No. We ate a lot of peanuts. We ate a lot of cake. At least the guests did. Uh, we shook a lot of hands and hugged a lot of necks, and so that's the way it works. You really, you're the one person at your wedding that doesn't really have a good time. Everybody else, well, you do later, but you don't have a good time at that particular moment because you're being stressed out with all the guests. They're shaking your hands, hugging your neck, so you don't get to eat much cake. You don't get to eat, drink much punch. But everybody else is just having a really good, happy, wonderful time. And the idea that you'd be invited to a wedding, and then it would come time for the reception, and you'd walk in there, and there's nothing to drink, no food, and everybody is gloom. Well, you say, saying that's sheer insanity. Right. And Jesus is saying, when you have a party, and when you celebrate the presence of the bridegroom with his bride, it is a time to celebrate. It's a time to shake hands, hug necks, and share kisses. In other words, is everything right with our being moral in our lifestyle, but not legalistic? Is everything right with us being righteous, but not stern? And in Jesus... We ought ought not to walk around like we've been vaccinated with pickle juice. But in Jesus, if anyone should be happy with life, it ought to be you and it ought to be me. There should be joy in Jesus. So we don't fast and mourn when it's time to celebrate. However, we do fast and mourn when we consider what our sin has caused us. Look at verse 20. He says, the days will come. When the bridegroom is snatched away, suddenly taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. In other words, Jesus says there is a time when fasting will be appropriate and that day will come. When the bridegroom, when Jesus suddenly snatched, uh, suddenly taken away. Now again, this is an anomaly. It's, 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 it's actually something you could not hardly conceive of. You're, you're at a wedding celebration. There's the the bride and the bridegroom, and then all of a sudden uh, he's gone. We're still partying, still having a good time, and they're looking forward to their wedding night. And all of a sudden you look around and you say, "Well, wait, wait, hold on now. Well, there's the bride, but where's the bridegroom? Oh, he's gone. He's gone. He's gone." gone where been snatched away been suddenly taken away unexpectedly well that's not good no that's not good is he coming back well by analogy at this point no he's not coming back well that makes me sad that breaks my heart I don't have much of an appetite anymore and in fact I think that I'll just take a few days and not eat at all because there's sorrow in my soul now not joy i do agree with those bible commentators who believe that this is a very subtle but a very real inference to his crucifixion it's the first one by the way we're only in the second chapter but already this early jesus sees the storm clouds on the horizon already he knows that as the suffering servant of the lord he is going to be cut off and so he uses the interesting analogy of a, of a wedding where the bridegroom suddenly, uh, inexplicably, is taken and snatched away and the guests are left there alone. And so in that context, there is indeed the need to fast. Of course, the further question that ought to be asked, which is in your outline, is, well, why is the bridegroom snatched away? He's snatched away because of your sin and my sin. He is taken away because of the penalty of sin that he will pay in your place and in my place. He is snatched away to suffer alone on a Roman cross to atone for our sins. He is going to be snatched away to die the death you should have died. He's going to be snatched away to pay the price you should have paid. He's going to die in my and your place. He's going to bear your and my wrath. He is going to take on your and my judgment. God is going to kill his son instead of killing you and killing me. And so over my sin... And what it costs, yes, I should weep, I should mourn, I should grieve, and yes, I should fast. There is a time when we should do nothing but celebrate and be joyful. And yes, there's another time when we should do nothing but mourn, fast, and grieve when we realize what our sin cost the bridegroom. So Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. And then secondly and finally, Jesus came to make things new and not to perpetuate the old. Uh, the messianic wedding imagery now shifts to two very uh, crisp and concise parables. Uh, the connection is really not with fasting now. Fasting gets moved off the stage and it's really now uh, uh, related to Jesus and what his first coming means. Now we've already seen. Jesus came to save sinners, not the self-righteous, chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus came to bring gladness, not sadness, chapter 2, verse 19. And now we see, thirdly, he came to introduce the new, not patch up the old or perpetuate the old, chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. Jesus wants us to understand that the old is not bad, but the old was a promise that is now giving way to fulfillment, and therefore something new is happening, and we have to move on and not go back. First observation for verse 21, false religion, or at least we could say old religion, but I'm going to say false now because once the new is here, the old becomes false if you still think it's preeminent. The, the false religion is like an old garment that needs to be discarded. He says there again in verse 21, you don't sew a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. You say, well, what you do with the old garment? Will you throw it away. It can't be patched up. The tear is too great. And to try to repair it is only going to make the tear greater. And so Jesus is trying to help us understand you cannot unite the gospel of Jesus with the old religion of Judaism. It is just as foolish and useless as trying to patch an old, worn-out piece of cloth or an old, worn-out garment with a new, unshrunk piece of cloth. When the new gets wet, it's going to shrink. It's going to tear away from the old. And you'll have even a bigger, larger hole than you did in the first place. In other words, it just won't work. It just won't work. And it's even foolish to try. Now, again... Hear me and hear me well. Jesus is not saying that the old was bad. But what he is saying is that the old is no longer usable. The old has been replaced by something better. Do we need to continue to sacrifice on the Day of Atonement? No. The perfect sacrifice has been made. Do we need to observe a physical Passover where we slice the throat of a lamb? No. The Passover has been served and fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus has come. He has fulfilled all of that. And so that which was a promise... Has now been fulfilled. That which was good then. Has now as the author of Hebrews says. Thirteen times by the way. Has been replaced by something that is better. And to try to prop up as, as you were. The old. And give it a new face. It's useless. It's futile. And interestingly when you even watch today. How some try to prop up Judaism. It doesn't work. It won't hold. It won't gain traction. And so when the promise has been fulfilled, we don't go back to the promise. We move forward to that which is new. Which leads us to the second analogy and the final illustration through the wineskins. False religion is like old wineskins that cannot contain new life in Christ. Second parable is kind of like the first parable. Verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins if he does. The wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, I've read this all my life, heard this all my life. I wanted to understand exactly what was going on, so here's what I learned. Best they could in the ancient world when they would kill a goat, they would skin that rascal, but they would try to skin him in one whole piece as best they could. And then where they had to make cuts, they would sew him back up, plug out the paws and so on and then they would fill that new goat skin with wine well because it was new it still had flexibility and elasticity and of course when you pour wine into it and seal it up uh, it is going to begin to ferment gases are going to form and it will stretch the wine skins and make evidently a better tasting wine but because those wine skins are new and elastic and flexible they will not burst but like anything as it grows older It becomes brittle. It becomes kind of fixed. And so if you were to take an old wineskin, it's now empty. Fill it up with new wine and seal it up. Well, when the wine again begins to ferment and to expand, this time that which is not flexible but brittle will not be able to contain it. It will burst. It will break. And not only will you destroy the wineskin, you will also lose all the wine as well. You say, what's the point? The point is this. Like the parable of the new cloth on an old piece of clothing, uh, both parables talk about the relationship of Jesus and Christianity to traditional Judaism. They illustrate again, as I've said several times tonight, the radical new era in Jesus' coming changes everything. Jesus is the new patch. Jesus is the new wine. To say it another way, he's not an attachment He's not an addition. He is not an appendage to the status quo. He cannot be integrated uh, into or contained, if you like, by pre-existing religious structures. That may even be something as grand and glorious as Judaism, as the law, as the synagogue. They are not able to hold or contain the new that has come with Jesus. After all, we see in chapter 2 and verse 10, they say, we've never seen anything like this before. That was a colossal understatement. And so now that he has come, he has changed everything. The, the whole agenda is now a new agenda. And he makes everything look new. And he does indeed make everything new by his coming. To make it very personal, Jesus did not come to let you uh, simply add him on as an appendage to your current clothing. He not come to take your old wineskins and pour his new wine in there so that you can still keep the old and also enjoy the new. He doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. When he comes, he comes to take over. He comes to make everything new. In other words, he's not saying to you, carve out a little room for me in your life. He's saying, forget it. I'm brand new, both as a new patch. I'm brand new as new wine. Business as usual is over. You want an illustration? Go look at Levi. Levi is a perfect example of one who understood that he could not just add Jesus to himself. He is not one who could fill himself with Jesus and still maintain his old way of life. No, when Jesus came into his life, he walks away from everything. He cuts his ties with everything. He understands with Jesus, everything is new. And so the text is very clear. Jesus came to make things new. He did not come to perpetuate the old so let's bring it to a quick conclusion with jesus in his life his ministry his atoning death his resurrection everything changes the world will never ever be the same again after the christ event and by the way it only changes it changes for the better it changes for that which is good and therefore coming full circle can there be any compromise between judaism and christianity no can there be any uh, compromise in coming together between a works religion and a faith religion? No. Can there be any compromise in commingling of my old life and my new life in Christ? Again, the answer is no. As I was preparing this message, I came across an extended quote by the wonderful Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe, who for many years pastored the Moody Bible Church in Chicago. And so uh, it's in your notes. I close with it. I think he just puts it together so beautifully. Jesus came to usher in the new, not to unite with the old. The Mosaic economy was decaying, getting old and ready to banish away. Hebrews eight thirteen. Jesus would establish a new covenant in his blood. Luke twenty two nineteen and 20. The law would be written now on human hearts, not on stones, Hebrews 10 and 2 Corinthians 3. And the indwelling Holy Spirit, he would enable God's people to fulfill the righteousness of the law, Romans 8. By using these illustrations, Jesus refuted once and for all the popular idea of a compromising world religion. Well-meaning but spiritually blind leaders have suggested that we take the best from each religion, blend it with what is best in the Christian faith and thus manufacture a synthetic faith that should be acceptable to everybody. But the Christian faith is exclusive in character. It will not accept any other faith as is equal or its superior. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Thus, salvation is not a partial patching up of one's life. It's a whole new robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61 and 2 Corinthians 5. The Christian life is not a mixing of the old and the new. Rather, it is a fulfillment of the old in the new. An excellent way of saying it. Thus, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, types, and demands of the law of Moses the law was ended at Calvary when the perfect sacrifice was made uh, once for all, offered for the sins of the world. When you trust Jesus Christ, you become a part of a new creation, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. And there are always new experiences of grace and glory. How tragic when people hold on to dead religious tradition and they could lay hold of living spiritual truth. Why cherish the shadows? When the reality has come in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, we have the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And indeed, with Jesus and His coming, everything, 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 it changes. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this simple text that uh, uses the... uh, Imagery of a bridegroom, a, a piece of cloth, and uh, wineskins is something ready at hand that all those in the first century would have readily grasped, and actually we can understand it too. And, and when it is a wedding celebration, it is that of celebration, and when Jesus is in our midst, we celebrate and rejoice in all the goodness and all the blessing that we enjoy in and through Him. Yet, Lord, there is a time to mourn and even a time to fast when we reflect upon what our sin cost our Savior. And Lord, when you came and you're coming into our lives now, you're not coming to patch up an old Danny Aiken. You're coming to make a brand new Danny Aiken. You're not coming to pour yourself into an old Danny Aiken, but you're coming to pour yourself into a new Danny Aiken, made new by my relationship and union with you. And so, Lord, forgive me when I hang on to things from the past. Forgive me when I hang on to things I ought to let go of. Forgive me... When I look back rather than look forward, Lord, help me to recognize that with your coming into this world and into my life, everything changes. And yes, sometimes the changes are a little, maybe even a lot, painful. But they're always good. Because your will is good, acceptable, and perfect. So Lord, we rejoice in the great foundation that was laid by the Hebrew faith but we rejoice even greater for its fulfillment in the coming of Messiah Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us.